steward of the mystery. We said that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's in a Roman jail cell writing right now, writing as a, a guard is chained to him, writing this book and writing the, the, the prison epistles, if you will. So he's a prisoner of that mystery. Verse 2 says that he's a steward of that mystery, that God put him over this mystery, that he was to be a manager of it, that he was to be a revealer of it. And we come this morning, that's my review very quickly, we, we come this morning to the third unlocking key, and we'll call it the servant of the mystery. Paul simply here is expanding the mystery of Christ from another angle. And it gives us a wonderful venue, if you will, into his heart and into his calling. It's possible that someone might have said in regards to the prisoner and in regards to the steward, someone may have asked from the church that this first went to at Ephesus and then became a circular letter, Maybe someone said to Paul, and who are you to tell us this? Okay, you're the prisoner of Christ Jesus. You're the steward, but tell us a little bit more. He called himself a steward in verse 2. Now he calls himself, as you saw in the reading, in verse 7, a minister of the gospel. That's what he was. A minister of or a servant, it says there in verse 7, of the mystery. He'll go on to declare that. And that's really what I want to look at this morning. Just that third point, the servant of the mystery. And I want to look at three compelling components of being a servant of this mystery. And it not only is an example for Paul who was a minister of the ministry, mystery, but it's also an example for any called man of God today. Obviously, the singular focus is on him being made a minister, and that is as an apostle. But certainly, there's other features that come to those men who are called by God today. So let's look at those three compelling components. And I really want you to grasp this. You'll understand the insight that he's been given into the mystery. But I also want you to understand this as a church. And it's not that you don't understand this as a church, but I, I want to tell you what your role is in that, even as we train men for pastoral ministry. That part is crucial. So if you're not one of these men that have been called out by God, that's great. Because Paul said it was all grace given to him. But you as a church family, as a church body, as a leadership, have a role and responsibility to these men that have been called out and raised up by God. Well, nevertheless, what are these compelling elements or components of the gospel? Number one, you've got to be called by God. You have got to be called by God. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, he said, I was made a minister. In other words, Paul wants to declare that God himself sovereignly did a work in his heart. In other words, Paul could say it from another way. I was 
passive in this calling. I didn't sign up for this calling. Don't you remember I was on the road to Damascus when I was, you know, blocked, you know, knocked down to my knees by that bright light. This is not my doing. This is not my calling. This is not my efforts. Paul is saying I was passive in this. I didn't sign up for this. Very clearly in the text in verse 7, he said, I was made a minister, if you will. And you'll note there that in verse 7, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. In other words, he wasn't just a minister. The word I'll tell you in a minute is a servant. But he's a minister of the gospel. In other words, this isn't his own personality. This isn't even his own training of this gospel at the end of verse 6, and it says it again in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. And I love that point. He is a minister, a servant of the gospel. And again, not his own purpose, not his own uh, initiative. He didn't make this up. He was made by sovereign choice of God. It says here in the ESV, a minister. The, The word there is just in the Greek is diakonos. And it's just simply but profoundly the word for a servant. In fact, in biblical times, a servant was just somebody who would wait, wait on tables. And so here, Paul is a servant. He is a waiter, if you will, taking orders from another. And this is how Paul looked at himself. This is what God does in the life of particular men when he calls them out. And Paul didn't kind of identify himself in this calling as anything special. He actually said, I am a servant of another. I'm a servant of the gospel. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mystery, mysteries of God. There, that word in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 for servant is huperites. And the word that he described himself as is a third level galley slave in the bottom of the ship. In other words, there's, there were slaves that were rowing, if you will, this massive ship. They had a top tier, they had a middle tier, and then they had a bottom tier. And when Paul began to identify himself, this is how he identified himself as a servant, as a third-level galley slave, as a steward of the mystery of God. In fact, look over just to the right a little bit in the book of Colossians. Let me show you this theme here. This is what a man of God does. He is called by God. He is made a minister. Paul uses this language in 123 of the book of Colossians. He says there, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, here's our word again, became a minister. He's a minister of the gospel. Look again at Colossians 1.25. He speaks of the church at the end of verse 24, verse 25, of which I became, there's our word, a minister according to the stewardship from God, this is key, that was given to, 
to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And so Paul was called by God. He was a servant of the, min, the mystery. In fact, when he told his testimony and when he was giving his defense before King Agrippa, Jesus, and Paul is quoting the Lord, said to Paul, but arise, right when he was saved, stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you, and I love this phrase, to appoint you a servant, there's our word, diakonos, and a witness. In other words, he was not just called by the grace of God in salvation, but Almighty God appointed him to be a servant. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, there Paul is just asking a rhetorical question. What then is Apollos and what is Paul servants through whom you have believed as the Lord is assigned to each. So this man, Paul, the servant of the mystery, is called by God. In fact, not only was he called by God, but he knew that calling, and certainly any man that would serve the Lord by indirect thought today must know that calling. Say, how, how fierce was his calling? 1 Corinthians 9 16 through 18, I think you could finish the sentence when he said, for woe is me if I what? I preach not the gospel. He felt as though a curse was being pronounced on him if he didn't preach the gospel. Look back just one book. Let me just show you this ideal of calling in Galatians 1. In fact, he, he speaks there of his role of a servant in Galatians 1.10 he said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, here it is, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. Here's the subject of Ephesians. Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have heard of my former manner of life or former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and, tr and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of the fathers and then this. But when he who had set me apart before I was, what? Born, who called me, by his grace. There's the thought. He was a called man of God. And I would say to us that no man should ever enter into the ministry unless one is absolutely of the Lord's calling in his life. So here's the first component. Let's just say he's called by God. But secondly, not only is he called by God, but he's gifted with grace and power, gifted with grace and power. Look back at Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. He says first there, according to the gift of God's grace. And when he speaks here of grace, he's not speaking, at least in this context, of saving grace. Ephesians 2, 8, I've made that clear to you. 
This is the grace, this was the unmerited favor of God given to Paul in this office as an apostle. He was given the gift of God's grace. God's grace, beloved, you know this, made him a servant. His education didn't make him an apostle, nor did his ability, nor did his giftedness, but profoundly he was called, and here he was gifted by grace and made a minister. In fact, look, it says it there. He speaks of this gift of God's grace, verse 7. Look at verse 8. He says there to me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given. In fact, if you look back at verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. It was all the grace of God. It was that stewardship that was given to him. Now you'll note there in verse uh, 8 as he opens up, and I don't know how you would read that. There's a couple of ways to read that by way of intonation there. When he says in verse 8, to me, uh, and then he says to the very least, he goes, I am the least of all the saints. I mean, you you could say there, to me. The very least of all the saints, but I don't think so. I think he's saying it that he's stunned to me. I think that's how he's saying it. Though I am the very least of all the saints. Now you'll note there, look in verse 8 when he says, though I am the, he uses this word, it's, it's there in the original he says, very least. Yeah, I, I just am struck sometimes that I think when Paul, he was just overwhelmed. He was called by God, but he was gifted by God with grace. He probably could have said the least, the least of all the saints. But he, he uses this term. It's never used in any other place in the Greek language. He says, the very least of all the saints. In fact, you can't even really have an English word. You would probably say leaster, which we don't have. We have Easter, but the, you would have to say leaster, and leaster is not a, not a word here. Now listen, this is not mock humility. This is not self-deprecation by Paul. I think Paul, beloved, was so overwhelmed by God's grace that he used this phrase that I am the very least of all the saints. This is not false, you know, self-effacing humility. It is an honest expression of his heart before God. In fact, do you remember in 1 Timothy 1.15 where Christ Jesus, Paul said there, came into the world to save sinners among whom I am what? Foremost of all. One translation says, among whom I am chief of all. In fact, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, that I am the least of the apostles. He believed this. So not only was he called by God, but there is an ever-present, overwhelming, magnanimous sense of who God is in his life and who he was before he came to Christ. And so he says, I'm the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle. 
He looked back at his life and he said, I persecuted the church of God. But then he said, I am. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. And so here as he calls, talks about these three compelling components of a, of a man of God, he realized and recognized that God had called him. He realized and recognized that God had gifted him by his grace, the unmerited favor of God given to this man. In other words, Paul knew this wasn't an ambition to be pursued. He wasn't in this place as an apostle with prestige. In fact, far from it. He lost everything. He knew that his service for Jesus Christ was not an honor to be gained. In fact, if anything, he was stripped of everything. He knew that to be a servant was not some enhancement to his reputation. No, because he became of no reputation in the scripture. He knew that this was not some academic degree that he had pursued. No, he says God did it all. God did it all. And I think he wants you as a church family to know something of the servant. He told you that he was a prisoner. He told you that he was a steward. He, the, the, the revelation of this mystery, if you will, came to him and he is the servant of it. He is less than the least. Beloved, I just think when we meet him, I spend more time with him than, in the Bible than, than anybody. Obviously, the focus will say something of this, of the Lord Jesus Christ, but nobody has impacted my life, you know, more than the Lord Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. He was overwhelmed by his salvation first. He's overwhelmed by this calling. He would say of himself, formerly I was a persecutor. Formerly I was a violent aggressor. Formerly, remember, he would say to us, I was on the wrong team. And he now says, I'm the very least of them all. And I don't think that limits his service. I think it's actually the key to usefulness of any of God's servants. But we live today, do we not, in the day of celebrity pastors. We live in the day of men that are brash, men that are harsh, men that speak harshly. It's an interesting day in which we live in, and a lot of men, not for anything scandalous, if you will, out of their own lack of personal purity, but simply for their harshness, don't have a place in the ministry anymore. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. Even though I am a servant of this mystery, I want you to know that God called me. I want you to know that he not only called me, but he infused in my life the grace to give me the capability to carry out my calling. So he's called by God. Secondly, he's gifted with grace, but the grace here is linked to something else. Look at it in verse 7. It says there, the gift of God's grace, see them together, which was given me, in other words, he didn't buy it, he didn't purchase it, he didn't go online and get an ordination you know, people can get ordination certificates now online. You know that. All you have to do is just jump on the web, find some place that can give you ordination, and out it can come in the mail or back on email to you. Not Paul, okay? You say, what, what gave him that? Well, it was given me that grace. Look at verse 7. He says there, uh, by the working of his power. I love that. 
the working. What, what do you mean, Paul? Why are you doing what you're doing? Well, it's his calling, his grace. It's the working, and you would understand the Greek word. It's energian, okay, which obviously we get energy from. So God not only gave him grace to fulfill this role, God gave him the in energy, the working activity of God's power. In other words, God's strength was released to him. God's might was released to him. The working of his power. In fact, look over just again at Colossians. It's so similar. I want you to see this in one chapter 1. He, he speaks of this power. He uh, He's proclaiming Christ in 28, but in 129, he said, for this, interesting, he's not la lazy for this, verse 29, I toil. And I think the word there is the ideal of agonizing to the point of sweat. He says, I'm, I'm working, but look what he says in 29, struggling, you know, just striving with all his energy. Here's the key that powerfully works within me. So you say, how did Paul do it? God's grace. How did he do and fulfill this calling? God's power. You say, well, what kind of power is that? Well, look at Colossians 2 and verse 12, and this power has been given to all of us, having been buried with him in baptism, 2.12 of Colossians, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ is the power that works within each of us. And Paul was given a dimension of that power, his grace and power as an apostle. And so he was dependent, was he not, on God. MacArthur said this, thought it was fascinating, he said, then or now, then or now, the man who is genuinely called by God is in constant danger of losing his effectiveness by coming to think of himself as more than a servant. When he loses his sense of servanthood, at the same time he loses his spiritual power and usefulness. When he exalts himself and begins to work in his own human power and according to his own plans, he competes with God and forfeits his spiritual power. To lose dependence, MacArthur said, is to lose everything because everything that is of any value in our lives, including power for effective service, comes only from the Lord. And he finished by saying, among the greatest dangers in ministry and to all faithful Christians living are things that in the world's eyes are of supreme value. He called it personal ambition, prestige, recognition, honor, reputation, and success. Listen, beloved, God not only chooses, according to Corinthians, weak and foolish people to save, but he also takes weak and foolish preachers through whom to save them that he gives this message. So Paul speaks of the working of this power. He wasn't some just robot. He was an apostle, but he was called by grace and salvation, called by grace in this idea of a minister. He was given, if you will, God's power working in him. It wasn't his own power. It wasn't his own calling, his own choosing, his own initiative. 
No, it was God at work in him. Did not this writer say in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. So lest you see like this guy is some kind of, you know, celebrity, he says, I'm the least of them all. I'm the chief of sinners, and if he's writing 2 Timothy, and he was, he's calling himself the chief of sinners at the end of his life. Three times he told God, he prayed to God, remove, you know, this thorn, remove it from me. And God said no, three times. And that's when Paul said, here, God said, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in what? weakness do you think that or do you think you just got to come to the right place where you got all the right pieces in line no he said powers perfected in weakness Paul went on to say in 2nd Corinthians one of my favorite scriptures we have this treasure the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay so the, a band named themselves after that in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us Maybe you've walked in today and you think, well, I don't know if I could make it tomorrow. Listen, you could make it tomorrow because God promised to give you all the strength you need. He promised to give you the power of the resurrected Christ living in you through the Holy Spirit. And here he's decided to put the treasure of the gospel in just a jar of clay. Well, why would he do that? Well, to demonstrate to you and to me that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So, beloved, let me just say this. You show me a man called by God, then I'll show you a man who's been gifted with grace and power, and then he's been given something else. Look back in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. And, and this is how it worked for him. It works in the same way today. It says that he was, he says this power, this grace was given. He says in verse 8, do you see it there? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So called by God, gifted with grace and power. And thirdly, this man uniquely was set apart to preach, to preach. He said to me, I think with a question, though I'm the least of all the saints, I was called to preach. It's a great word, to preach. It's one of the preaching words in the New, New Testament Evangelizo, it just means to announce the good news. So if he was truly, and he was, set apart from prior to his birth, he was called, he was gifted, and he was set apart to do this, to preach, to announce the good news, to proclaim the good news. Remember, this is the same one who penned under the Spirit's control in Romans 10. How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a what? A preacher. That beloved, though this is a divine mystery, he is ever in the, the, the business of calling out men of God calling them out by a sovereign work of God, gifting them with grace and power, but giving them a here an ability to preach. How can they hear without a preacher? How can they believe in whom they have not heard? Tyler, 
and Lucy left on a plane yesterday to go back to a country of three million people of whom less than one percent name Christ. If you want to know more about this, I think that Secret Church that Derek will be leading will be a great venue for you to see this. In fact, Paul himself was a an apostle to the Gentiles. But he said in 2 Timothy 1.11, speaking of the gospel for which I was appointed. This is what he said. I don't know if I have this one on the next slide. I don't think I have this one. He said, of which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He was appointed a preacher. When God gets a hold of a man, calls him to ministry, he puts him in a place to be a preacher of the gospel, to be a preacher, to announce the good news. So specifically here, though, look again at the text. He was called to preach to, you got to see this, to the Gentiles. In other words, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. You say, well, when did he get this call to preach? At his salvation. Does it always happen that way? No, it doesn't always happen that way in every man's life today. But when he was called to Christ, struck down on the Damascus road. Here's what the Lord said to him that day in Acts 9.15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, here's the phrase, before the Gentiles and to what? Kings. So I think I said a week ago that he finds himself chained to a Roman soldier Sitting in, we, we think it's Rome, I do. It's five years of Roman imprisonment, two in Caesarea, two more in Rome. And while he's chained there, and maybe a little few more months, he's chained to the soldier. You say, well, why? Because he's not only fulfilling his calling to preach to the Gentiles, he's about ready to preach to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, fulfilling his ministry. In fact, I've got that on the next verse in Acts 26, I've appeared, he's giving his testimony, I think here right before Agrippa, I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you, he's reciting Jesus' words, as a servant, as a witness to the things which you have seen, you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering from your people, that would be the Jewish people, and then this, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. So he was called and set apart to preach, but specifically to preach to the Gentiles. And you say, well, what did he preach? Well, he preached the gospel, but look again at the text in 3.8. He said to preach to the Gentiles, he spoke there of the unsearchable, I love that, riches of Christ. What do you mean unsearchable? It's one of those words. It's not used often. God was said to be unsearchable in the book of, of Job. But the picture here of, of the unsearchable riches of Christ is the picture of a reservoir so deep, if you will, that nothing can reach the bottom. In fact, the word unsearchable means unable to be traced. Unable to be tracked out. So we have searchers. If you've gone on a bear hunt and you might take a guide with you to get you where these elk are and to where these bear are and these guides are guiding you. But when he speaks here 
of the person of Christ, he says the person of Christ is unable to be tracked out. The person of Christ, beloved, is so majestic, so holy, so glorious, so caught up in he as the receiver of all the glory of God is unsearchable. In fact, some translators don't know what to do with this word. And so some have called it, he's incomprehensible. Some have said the unfathomable riches of Christ. Other people have used it and said the unexplorable riches of Christ. Still another said of Christ that he is the inexhaustible Christ. That he is the infinite Christ. That he is the incalculable Christ. Paul used the word in another place. Do you remember in Romans 11.33 when he got done with that marvelous section there of the end times and the, the role of the Israel, the role of the Gentiles and he said oh the depth of the riches the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and actually the word is the next phrase how inscrutable his ways so here Paul beloved preached the unsearchable riches of Christ I could create a comparison he didn't preach politics He didn't talk about education. He didn't talk about current events. He preached Christ, amen? In fact, Paul said of the person of Christ in Colossians 2, 3, in whom, in whom, speaking of Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why would you preach something else? Why do pastors think they can get creative with the text? Why do they think that other things are more profound than the person of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? In fact, he said in Ephesians 1.18, he was praying there. Do you remember? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glory and inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing power of Christ in you. So here is the mark of a true preacher. A true preacher preaches Christ, preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's what we're doing here, training men at the Master Seminary. I'll say more of that in just a moment. But we know from Ephesians that his grace is rich. We know from the book of Romans in 2.4 that his goodness and patience are rich. We know from Romans 11.33 that God's wisdom and knowledge are rich. We know in Ephesians 2.4 that his mercy is rich. We know in Colossians 3.16 that his word is rich. Preach that. And Paul's been unpacking these riches for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And then he began to describe those blessings to us that we've been called out by God the Father before the foundation of the world. He began to speak about the richness of the person of Christ who died in our place and redeemed us through his blood and granted us the forgiveness of his sins. He began to speak more in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 of the riches of his grace that he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall and granted us peace that we've now been reconciled to God and to each other 
And as Paul went into the treasury house of Jesus Christ, he kept finding more riches. This is who he was as a servant. But he wasn't just preaching to the Gentiles. Look what else he did in verse 9. Just a word here. To bring to light. In other words, I'm revealed. God's not only spoken to me and called me and gifted me and set me apart to preach, but here it is in verse 9. To bring to light, to illuminate for everyone, not just the Jewish people, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? My goal is to preach Christ. My goal is to bring to light. My goal is to reveal the plan of the mystery. The word for plan is the same word for stewardship. And he says basically my goal is that what was hidden, you know, and it was for ages hidden in God and then he makes this last phrase there, who created all things. That namely the one who created and revealed the, the mystery and the creator of the world are one. So here's three compelling elements of the servant of the mystery. He's called by God. He's gifted with grace and power. And he is set apart to preach. Let me just make a word to you. And I just, I want to just be very direct and I feel like if there's anything that I could say about what we're doing in the training of men, I, I probably say so little. And maybe there's a reason for that because I couldn't be more thrilled yesterday to see 150 men here learning how to lead in love. It was just a breakfast, just with men. There were high school students there, junior high students. And I think I get so excited what God's doing in our men's ministry that sometimes I don't tell you what's going on here. And I'm not just telling you what's going on. I'm telling you for how you can be a part of this. Obviously, we have the master seminary here on our campus. We are preparing ministers of the gospel one of the first things I look for, it's not always clear, but I look for it, is to make sure this man coming to us is called by God. To make sure that there's humility in this man, that he's been gifted with grace and with power, that the grace and the power is not of himself, but he understands himself in comparison to the greatness of God. And then thirdly, that a guy that's going to be willing to undergo that training for what is four years, has some affinity to be set apart to preach the good news of the gospel. And I want you to keep praying for these men. I'm going to some of these men on Monday with my friend Dan. We have the wonderful privilege to speak to 150 pastors. What are we going to do? We're going to tell them something like this. I don't have any other gimmick to give them. There were 150 pastors there pray that we could minister to Hector and to Indira. These are our own missionaries who are out in Mexico preaching the gospel. And, and then I have the privilege to go to Jeremy who's preaching the gospel in Texas. I was with Dom last Sunday night who's preaching the gospel at Grace Church of Monterey Bay. I was with David last Sunday night who's preaching the gospel up in Ripon. 
We had the privilege this last week to say goodbye to Tyler and Lucy for six months in Albania who's being trained and is in process to preach the gospel in Albania. In our seminary right now, we have James Prendergast. We have Derek. We have KC. We've got a a friend coming, another man coming, all the way from New Zealand to be part of the master's seminary. You say, well, why would he come here? Because he wants to be part of our staff. He wants to go to school, but he wants to learn how to be a minister of the gospel. Beloved, this doesn't even say anything about the amazing Shannon Hurley or Corey Kramer or Arione Dielli. In May, I'm going to Dubai. Eric Zeller has a training institute for those preparing for ministry. We'll have John Paul back with us uh, for some months in the summer. You say, why do I say that? Because they're part of the church that you're in. And they're part of your prayer team. You might not be in Uganda, but John Paul and his family is. And you have to know that as these men come into our midst and are being trained in our midst, we have the wonderful privilege to put our arm around these men and help them towards that calling. You say, well, what am I looking for? Four things specifically. Write this down because you play a part of this. And I'll be brief here. There's four things that go into the man of God. I was giving you part of his function. I'll be brief here. There's a subjective call of God on the man's life. There's an objective call on the man's life. There's a collective call on the man's life. And there's an effective call on the man's life. And and I'm being pinpointed here because I'm talking about Paul and I don't get a chance to say this. You say, well, Scott, what did you mean by those? It begins with a subjective call. The guy's got such a passionate call in his heart, such a deep desire to make Christ known that he feels an overriding burden and compulsion on his heart. Spurgeon said in his book, Lectures to My Students, he would bypass all the wealth of the Indies to be able to preach the gospel. It would cause a young man like Ty, I mean, if you've just ever been around Tyler, he's just passionate about the the gospel. We're, we're praying. You say, well, how, what can I do? Pray for him on this. Pray that as he's a missionary in process, that God begins to do this. But here, first, subjectively, it's internal to the man. It was in my life. I got to the point where I could do nothing else. It was such a raging fire in my bones that I would say to you that I feel with Paul, for woe is me if I preach not the gospel. When churches look for a man of God, they need to find a man who doesn't say, I dabble in five things, but that this one thing I do. So it's subjective. Okay, secondly, I'm preaching too much. Objective, okay? The subjective desire of the man's life is met subjectively, uh, is met objectively by the character of this man. And, I, and so when we speak of the objective nature, if God's going to subjectively call a man, then he's going to objectively give him the gifts and the enablement to fulfill that calling. It begins with his character and then it moves into his gifts that he doesn't just have a passion in his heart. He's objectively there. But I'm getting to the point where you come in is the third and fourth one. The third one is the collective call. What do you say? about this man what do you say about this man who labors among you both in his gifts and with his family what do you say collectively you say where do you get that i don't know i just get that from Acts 16 
that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren in Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted the man to go with them. So he's spoken of in more than one place, by more than one person, by the brethren, and Paul wanted the man to go with him. So when these men come and they're part of our ministry and part of our church and they move here to be trained, collectively what you say is intensely practical to me. What you say, how, like, I, like a guy came up to me last week, I think I could say this because he's gone. It was a leader in our 18 to 24 ministry, and I don't want to make too much of this, okay? He's, he's young. And he goes, man, just one of our men, just a, a, fit, a member in our flock serving in a, he goes, man, that guy could preach. He goes, I didn't think he could preach at all. And he was talking about Tyler Tartaglia, Tartaglia. And I thought, I just listened. I got my ear to the ground. I mean, it'd be wrong if he was only passionate and he had no objective call. And I thought, ah, thanks for telling me that. Listen, you have a part in this. And I don't know why God has chosen to do this in our church. But just with those names I've rattled off, praise God that our ministry is reaching around the globe by men who love Christ. Keep praying for that. So collective, and the last one, number four, is effective call. That's where you come in. You say, what do you mean by that? Is the guy effective? (laughs) That's what I mean. Does he bear spiritual fruit? That's why they're here to be trained and be trained to hear the unsearchable and to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Listen, subjective call internal. Objective call the man's gift. Collective call what the body says. Effective call is his effective fruitfulness in your life. And listen, you have a part of that. You don't train these guys in a vacuum. They're part of our local church. And I'm not exhorting you. I think I just want to say thank you for loving these men. I don't need it. We don't need a ton of them on our staff. We don't need a ton of them in our church. But if we can take these guys and begin to craft and mold and shape them so that they preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, then, then I pray that he would be glorified. Let me finish with this. It came to my mind late. It was in a sermon by a man by the name of S.M. Lockridge. He was an African-American pastor preaching at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. He's since gone to be with the Lord, but I, I loved what he said about Christ, and I finish with Christ. The Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He said he's the king of the Jews, that's a racial king. He's the king of Israel, that's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? David said the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. 
He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He said, do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's awesome. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal message of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of every good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder, he said, if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He said, well, my king is the king of kings. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway to deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's uncomprehensible or incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him out of your hand. You can't live without him. And you can't can't live out outlive him and you can't live without him the pharisees couldn't stand him but they found that they couldn't stop him Pilate couldn't find any fault in him the witnesses get their testimonies to agree herod couldn't he said kill him death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him that's my king and he went on to say do you know him would you pray that god gives us men who fear nothing but god and their own sin and who preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen.